So hello, my name is Ahmed Al-Nauq and I'm a journalist from Gaza. And today I'm finally going to learn about the bomb that Israel dropped on my home, which killed 21 members of my family. And here I'm happy to be joined by two experts, uh, Andrew Feinstein and uh, Huda Amouri, uh, co-founder of Palestine Action. Um, but before I ask you my first questions, um, I would like to tell you about a conversation that I had today with my sister-in-law. And uh, I had this conversation with her before I come to the studio in order to understand what actually happened on that day. So my sister-in-law, her name is Shayma, and she's 33 years old. And she was in my home when, the, uh, when Israel bombed my home. She was sleeping. It was 4 a.m. And she was actually sleeping next to my, my brother, her husband. And she was carrying her son, Omar, who was only three years old, when the bomb dropped. So I asked her what happened. And she said uh, she was sleeping. And then she suddenly heard something that um, hit the ground. And the next thing she remembered is that she's under the rubble. And uh, she said that um, she was next to, uh, to, to her husband, my brother. And for a few minutes, she heard the last breaths of her son. So uh, a few hours later, she said she, they managed to get her out. And she left uh, to the uh, hospital. She was injured. Uh, my brother, her husband, was killed. Her two children were killed. And my father, who's her brother, uh, her father-in-law, was killed. And uh, then she uh, she left. Then I asked her today, "How does she feel?" And she said, "I'm, I'm going to read what she what she said to you. What she said. Um, she said, Muhammad, who's her husband." is all my life he is he is her mother and father and her brother and sister and all of his life and uh, with just one missile one bomb they destroyed all of her life so my sister-in-law she was an orphan she doesn't have a father or a mother both died when she was young and uh, she always considered my brother her husband as her entire world her entire universe and she said then, nothing in the world can make up for the loss, for this loss. Nothing can make up for the loss of her brother and her husband and her children. Then I asked her, what message would you like to send to the world? And she said, she said, and I quote, we love life and we love our, our children and we love our houses and we love our memories and we love to be loved. And we love peaceful, calm life. And we can never get over the pain that the Israelis has inflicted, uh, have inflicted on us. But at the same time, we are resilient. And then she said, we had hopes, we had dreams. We had dreams for our children. They were special, they were distinguished. And we were hoping to give them the best life that we, they could ever have. But then in a moment, all of our life is destroyed. And I am, Shayma, I am destroyed. This is what she said. So Andrew, I would like to ask you, please tell me about this bomb that destroyed me and destroyed my family. Where was it made? 
who profited from it uh, who uh, what kind of vehicle uh, did it carry tell me more about this pump mm. so first of all my condolences to you for all of your losses and to your sister-in-law it is indescribable what has happened to your family what has happened to so many palestinian families over so many years but over the last few months it has been at a level and a barbarity that i'm not sure we've ever seen before and what makes it worse is that the governments of the so-called west the global north who claim to to follow a, a rules based order have effectively been prepared to destroy that rule of law domestically and internationally in order to justify what israel is doing and to defend what israel is doing that's one side of it but the other side of it is they are completely complicit in the murder of your family because they've been providing the weapons that have been killing your family and as you suggest profiting from those weapons so before we go into the actual bomb it's probably worth saying that the way in which the global arms trade works it accounts for around 40% of all corruption in all world trade which is a terrifying figure and it gets away with it because everything that happens in the trade happens behind a veil of national security imposed secrecy so our governments our individual politicians the defense companies and their executives they can all do effectively whatever they want to do and if anyone tries to investigate it they told no no that's a matter of national security you can't find out any information about that and because of that secrecy they use the trade in weapons to effectively oil the wheels of our political systems so the bribes that are paid aren't only paid to the country that they sell to in this case israel but some of those bribes come back to the selling country in this case britain or the united states or germany and those bribes find their way to the executives of the arms companies to political parties in the form of donations by these companies and to individual politicians and it's really important to understand this and you know sometimes it's not paid as bribes while they're in office but for their role in ensuring that the world is in a perpetual state of conflict as soon as they leave office they paid ridiculous amounts of money by these and companies related to them the banks and the other intermediaries the law firms and auditing firms so you know you take someone like tony blair who we estimate very conservatively has probably made over 110 million pounds personally since he left office directly from the decision to invade iraq so companies who benefited from that 
and the defense companies that he worked so closely with while he was in office and that he's continued to work with since he left office. So these people are profiting from the murder of your and other families. So what is that bomb likely to be? So, you know, without fragments of the actual bomb, it's difficult to say this is definitely what it is. But I'll give you indications of what it could be. So it could be what are called dumb bombs, which are bombs, they sometimes also call dirty bombs, in the sense that they don't have much precision on them, they're dropped, and there is no control over exactly where they land, or the sort of impact they have in the area that they land in. And then you get what are called precision-guided munitions. And these are missiles and bombs that supposedly can be much more targeted and have less collateral damage. And I know this sounds terrible to talk about because we're talking about human beings here. Often, the precision-guided bombs are just the dumb bombs with a casing that provides greater technology that supposedly makes them more precise. My argument is that they very seldom are nearly as precise as they claim to be. But they're precise enough that we know that Israel is especially targeting certain families' homes. The homes of journalists has been extremely common for the obvious reason that Israel doesn't want the world to know what it's doing. So in all likelihood, the bomb that hit your family's home because of your and your brother's work, because of just the nature of your family. It could have been either of those bombs. It could have been just they decided this was a residential area, part of the most densely populated area on the planet, and we just want to kill Palestinians. In which case it would have been a so-called dumb bomb. If they were particularly targeting your family, then it might have been a more precision-guided munition. In either case, the likely companies who would have made that ordinance, and ordinance is the word we use for bombs, missiles, and those sorts of things, would have come from General Dynamics, or Boeing, or probably most likely of all Raytheon, a company that's now these companies change their names quite often and now calls itself RTX. So these are companies that are all American companies. America provides over 70% of Israel's weaponry. But that doesn't mean they necessarily manufactured in America. So all three of those companies have production facilities outside of America. Raytheon, which has probably benefited the most from Israel's genocide in Palestine. It has a lot of production facilities in the UK, but also has big production facility, I mean, in the US, but also has big production facilities in the UK. And it's quite possible that that sort of ordinance would have come from either an American or a British factory. And the trajectory of that bomb would have been that the company would have sold it with the consent and permission of its government 
if it was from the British factory, that would have had to have the permission of the American and the UK governments. So therefore, within those governments' arms export control laws, they would have said, fine, you can sell those bombs to Israel, even though, I would argue, it's totally in violation of the domestic laws of the countries, of the regional agreements, and of international treaties like the International Arms Trade Treaty. So let us just suppose that it came from one of the Raytheon factories in the UK and that it was sent by the company to the RAF base in Cyprus and that it was flown by an RAF plane from Cyprus to Israel, to a military base in Israel. The bombs would have then been unloaded in that military base in Israel and they would have been loaded onto an Israeli plane. And that could have been one of a number of planes. I think I have uh, an idea about what kind of a plane you're talking about. Because uh, it is sad to say that uh, I lived all of my life in Gaza and I've experienced many wars in Gaza. Yeah. And we were as young as six or seven or eight years old. We could distinguish between the sounds of the uh, airplanes. For example, we know the sound of the F-16 yeah. and F-35. We know the sound of the Apache. Even the, the young kids in Gaza could distinguish between the sounds. And we could distinguish between the sounds of these bombs. For example, if it was uh, an F-16 bomb, we could tell when we hear the voice, this is an F-16, yeah. this is an Apache, this is a drone. Wow. We could tell the, the, the difference between the, the rifles, the AK-47 or the M-16. Everyone in Gaza knows that because we have been exposed to so many, so many wars, so many bombardment. And I know that the bomb that hit my family it was either an F-16 or F-35. Okay. Why? Because my, my family home is a three-story building. It's a big house. It's not yeah. just a small one. Yeah. So most likely a drone bomb couldn't destroy it. An Apache bomb couldn't destroy all my home. And uh, maybe we can show some, some footage of, the, of, the, yeah. um, of my home. It turned into ashes. Yeah. It was completely destroyed with one bomb. Yeah. So we know this could be an F-16 or F-35. And it's very sad that we, the children and the kids in Gaza, I'm not a child, but the kids of Gaza, could distinguish the sounds of these bombs. So my, my neighbor told terrifying. me, it is terrifying. So we, we know that it was either an F-16 or F-35. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the vehicle, this, this plane. Who do you think designed this, this vehicle? So the most, I mean, if it was an F-16 or an F-35, it's important to understand that not one company manufactures everything to do with such a plane, but the primary design of that would probably have come from Lockheed Martin. So Lockheed Martin, which is the main contractor or defense company on the F-35 and has made most, not all, but most of the F-16s, is the biggest arms company in the world. Based in the United States of America, it is effectively subsidized by the American taxpayer. So for instance, military veterans for peace in the United States of America mm. refuse to pay 30% of their tax because they regard it as the so-called Lockheed tax. Because 30 cents in every dollar that you pay to US tax authorities goes to the defense companies and most of it to Lockheed Martin. 
So you're talking about a company like Lockheed Martin being the most likely manufacturer, but then there would be literally dozens and dozens of other companies all over the world who would produce components for those planes. So, you know, pretty much the vast majority of defense companies around the world that we're aware of have produced some component or other if they're in the aerospace area for the F-35. And that will be across the United Kingdom, the United States, most European countries. So you can literally, you can pick out a number of the companies that would have contributed to the manufacture of either of those jets. But Lockheed Martin would be the primary contractor. And the reality is that the executives of these companies have said things like, in the weeks following Israel's assault on Gaza, they were saying things to their shareholders like, oh yes, of course, this is you know so sad, but this is great news for our business. Yes. And we see their share prices shoot up. And what does that mean? That means the bonuses of all of these executives are going to shoot up as well. So all of these individuals are benefiting. All of the shareholders of these companies are benefiting. And these are mainly huge institutional shareholders, big investors like BlackRock and Fidelity and most of the world's big banks. They will all benefit because the share prices of these companies are rising. So I could say that every one of these people you have mentioned, they have a blood on their hands. Of course. The blood of my family of course. is on their hands. Absolutely. But as importantly as those people, and we need to remind those people how they make their living, because they make a very good living. They earn far more than the three of us combined of course. will make together in our lifetimes. They probably make more than that in a year. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, we must also talk about the politicians who enable and facilitate what they're doing and also make money from it. So they make money in terms of contributions to their political campaigns, which in the United States of America, I describe as a system of legalized bribery. In the UK and Europe, it's not legal, but it happens all the same. We sometimes find out about it, most of the time we do not. So all of our mainstream politicians, especially those politicians who are not and have not called for a ceasefire. They are complicit and they too are profiteering, just in the way that Tony Blair did from the invasion of Iraq. They are profiteering from the slaughter of your family. So these are all of the people who have blood on their hands. And it's something we should never let them forget. Huda, you are um, a fellow Palestinian mm -hmm. and um, you, have, you are someone who have been actively yeah. trying to expose and stop the production of this uh, machine of death. Mm -hmm. How do you feel after hearing all of this? This is what makes us fight and this is what drives us to target the weapons industry in a bid to stop the war machine in its tracks and cause a dent in the war machine because without the weaponry Without the weaponry that's being supplied to the Israeli military, they will not be able to commit these acts. And, and as you said, how many of them are profiting 
from this genocide? How many have been profiting from decades of Palestinians being under occupation, under colonization, under this military rule, which they are, they are benefiting from? And it's all around us. And I think that's such a key thing about talking about where these weapons are coming from. And you were talking about you know, the different companies profiting from the F-35 fighter jets. And as in Palestine Action, we've targeted a few. And when you understand how the arms industry works, as was already said, that so many of these weapons, you can deconstruct it. And the components are coming from different companies across the world on our doorsteps here in, in Brit Britain, in the US, in European countries. And this is where also our responsibility lies when, our, when the governments are failing to end this complicity. They're not just failing to end it, they are part of it. The, the, the British government is a part of the genocide that's going on right now. Um, and they have been part of assisting the colonization of Palestine for over 100 years. And when this continues to happen, as ordinary people, we have a responsibility uh, to, to put ourselves and to put ourselves in the way of these weapons manufacturers. And because of how it operates as well, we can have an impact in the sense that if you stop one of these factories, you can disrupt a supply chain. Um, one of the companies that supplies uh, materials for the F-35 fighter jets is Arconic. We targeted them a couple of times and Arconic not only supply the materials for the fighter jets, they also supplied the flammable cladding for the Grenfell Tower, uh, which, which set ablaze and killed uh, over 70 people in the, in the Grenfell fire. And yet they have never received any consequences from our government. And it just demonstrates, it's just one example of, the, we know that the government is openly allowing the genocide of the Palestinian people but even when these same companies are profiting from the, from the killing of people in this country, there's also no consequence. And I think when you see these patterns happening time and time again, and the mechanisms which we are made to feel like are supposed to stop things like this from happening are failing, then for us in Palestine Action, it's important at those moments to take direct action. Another uh, factory which we know produces parts for the F-35 fighter jets is one in Edinburgh, Leonardo, produced the laser targeting systems. We had people in Palestine Action Scotland occupy uh, this factory a couple of times. They were on the roof for a day, uh, caused millions of pounds of losses to that company and forced them to evacuate. This was before what's currently happening in the genocide, but really when we see how how they are operating in everyday society we can also see the ways that we can put ourselves in the middle of it and disrupt them from operating okay Huda, we have talked a little bit about the governments and the politicians complicity in the genocide that happens in gaza right now as you heard andrew mm -hmm. these politicians they profit from the manufacturing of these weapons from these machines of death that killed my family that killed 14 kids in my family and this is a question that i always think about so these politicians know what's happening in gaza they know that they are profiting from killing the the civilians the children and it occurs to me to think how do these politicians view the palestinians 
do they actually recognize our humanity? Do our lives matter to them? The, the hard answer and the honest answer is no. Uh, we're political pawns for the politicians and for the government. And I think we can see this constantly with government, you know, with, with politicians taking one stance, calling for Gaza, like Keir Starmer, for example, is saying that Gaza should be under siege, they should cut off the food, human, you know, humanitarian aid, the water supplies. And then when he feels like things are turning against him in terms of the vote, then he starts saying, oh, you're going too far now. Oh, 35, oh, maybe you're going too far, but I still won't call for any sanctions against you. And actually, and I think that there's so many people in this country who support the Palestinian people. And there's a lot of power in that. And politicians are trying to, will use that when it's convenient for them and will stab the Palestinians in the back constantly and then put, put on a face claiming that they are, they are supporting the Palestinian people in the most weakest way possible to try and recuperate some of our vote. And actually, when we look at the power that people have in this country, without looking at the politicians, that is where we can harness our strength. And often, you know, I grew up in this country. I was made to believe that this is a democratic country. If something was truly wrong and you campaigned in the right ways and you reached the right people and you, you, you're part of a movement, that that's how things will change. But when you do it constantly and when you see it constantly happening, Every, everyone on the political spectrum has, has, has stabbed the Palestinians in the back in one way or another. And when you see this happening constantly, that's when you start to say, you can't keep appealing to those same oppressors, to the same people who have been part and parcel of the genocide of the Palestinian people. Can I, can I just add to that? You know, as, as the non-Palestinian in the conversation, mm. and not just a non-Palestinian, but I'm also a white person who grew up privileged by a system of racism in apartheid South Africa, and I'm Jewish. Mm. And the terrifying thing for me, and perhaps I feel a sense of fraternity with the Palestinian people because of the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, but for me, you know, there have been instances in world history where a form of racist white supremacy has been at play. I would argue that, interestingly, that was the roots of the Holocaust, where my mother's family lost dozens of her family members, because it was this notion that this, there was this race, this Aryan race that was somehow superior to everybody else. And anybody who wasn't Aryan was dispensable and could be murdered. Then you have the case of apartheid South Africa, which was an even more obvious manifestation by a group of Nazi supporters, it should be said, mm. who believed that they were racially superior to all people of color. And in terms of the way the Palestinian people have been perceived, 
engaged with by the West. I mean, it's obviously varied over times, but there's been a consistent thread that has now come to full fruition, if you will, mm. in this assault on Gaza, where the vast, vast majority of Western countries, the vast, vast majority of Western politicians, and, you know, political divides don't seem to matter. I mean, in the United States, Democrat or Republican, their attitude to what is happening in Gaza is pretty much the same. In this country, Tory and Labour, you know, indistinguishable on Palestine. And I do believe that part of the roots of this approach to what is happening to your family, to Palestinian people, is based on, possibly unconscious, but on a manifestation of racist white supremacy that has caused untold suffering throughout human history. And to allow that to manifest as it has, where certain peoples are effectively dispensable. You know, I've heard people say, well, 1,200 Israeli Jews were killed on the 7th of October. Therefore, and I happen to be of the view that the death of any human being is a tragedy. And of course, we understand the context in which that happened. You know, it wasn't an unprovoked attack like some people are suggesting. It's a consequence of decades and decades of brutal and illegal occupation. It's a consequence of constant attacks on the Palestinian people. None as appalling as we've seen in the last months, but still horrendous. But to suggest that there is some sort of number that makes it in some way legitimate for Israel to respond to what happened on the 7th of October. So, you know, for every Israeli Jew, 30 Palestinians should be murdered. Or even more. Because or even yesterday, more. yesterday the Israelis wanted to rescue two hostages. So in order to rescue two hostages, they bombed areas in Rafah and killed 150 people. And you can hear this on the news as well. I think I heard it on the radio. And you know, they say 70 Palestinians died, oh, and, but they rescued two hostages. And you can see even in the tone of how it's they cover news. it in the media. Yeah. Yeah. And this is how they, they, it's like they're trying to justify the killings of the Palestinians and saying, but we got this at the end of it. And how it just shows how, you know, what's our life worth compared to. How in 2024 can such naked racism be so mainstreamed in the world. And the problem is, and I agree with Huda entirely, the problem is not with the majority of people in the global north, because we've seen over and over again in various polls in the size of the constant demonstrations that are happening in support of Palestine around the world. And the quicker that governments ban them, the more people that turn out for them. What we are seeing is this tiny elite of our politicians, our political and economic class, who control the nature of our political and economic systems, who have decided this is absolutely fine. And why is this fine? Because it makes them a lot of money and they believe they can make political capital out of it. But the majority of people are actually saying to them, that's not the case. You're not doing this in our name. 
And we've got to constantly remember that this is being done with our tax pounds, dollars, and euros. So it is being done in our name and with our money. And it's for that reason that it's so important when we hear the stories of your family and so many others that the sort of work that Palestine Action is doing becomes so important where people say, okay, so our politicians won't listen to us. We are going to take the law into our own hands and we are going to commit what are actually very minor crimes to prevent far greater crimes, including the ultimate crime, the crime of crimes, which is genocide, which is what happened to your family. And I think when we accept what is underpinning this continuing genocide, the racism and the white supremacy that is underpinning it, it becomes even more important for those of us who might be a distance from Palestine, even if we are not Palestinian, to actually take local actions that try and stop our complicity in what is going on. Is that why you decided to establish uh, Palestine Action? Is that why you decided it is necessary yes. to start Palestine Action? 100%. And I tried other methods before. I was very involved in organizing divestment campaigns, boycott campaigns, lobbying MPs. I did everything that they tell you you're supposed to do in a democratic society to create change. And when you get to a point when you realize that the politicians you're talking to give you the same response, they have no intention of creating the necessary change. They have no intention on imposing sanctions on apartheid Israel, no matter what they do, no matter what they do. Then there comes a point when you realize that the route left open for you is direct action. And that means that essentially we bypass the government, we bypass the politicians, and we say, well, if you're not gonna sanction Israel, we're gonna do it ourselves. We're gonna go to the weapons manufacturers, the Israeli weapons manufacturers like Elbit, who are all over this country, and we're gonna go and shut them down time and time again until they're forced to shut down for good. And sometimes when we do that, we're arrested, sometimes we're not, but the point is to cause constant sustained disruption to the Israeli weapons industry and to shut them down ourselves. And through that, we are sanctioning Israel through direct action, rather than begging for the same oppressors to sanction Israel, we will do it ourselves. And that's the essence of our direct action. Do you think that there is a legal obligation for you to do that, to shut down these factories? Because some people argue that what you're doing is illegal. So how do you respond to that? Is it illegal? Nothing we do, in, in our eyes, nothing we do is illegal. Because when you see the crimes that Elbit is committing, when you see the crimes that these weapons manufacture and how Israel uses this weaponry, and you, you see that then it is necessary for us to take these actions, especially when every other route has been closed off for us in order to stop them from committing the crimes they are doing against the Palestinian people. Even we've seen recently the International Court of Justice and the, they say that it's plausible that Israel is committing genocide. Now, we can all see it for ourselves. We know this is genocide. You know this is genocide. It's happened to your family. But even then, there was recently a question in in government and they responded to this question by saying about how are you going to stop 
arms sales to Israel as a result of the ruling by the International Court of Justice. They said, while we respect the International Court of Justice, we're not going to stop the arms sales. We believe Israel has a right to defend itself. So it took its own view, even though our own laws say if there's even a risk that it could be used in violation of international law, they should not be selling weaponry to Israel. Yet even despite this clear view that what they are doing will be is plausibly going to be used to commit genocide, they're still happy to send the weaponry, send it on. And just under the Genocide Act as well, it says that people have to do everything in their power to stop it from happening. And this is what we're doing. We are using our own bodies, our own power to stop the weapons manufacturers. Okay, uh, Andrew, here's um, a question to you. It was reported that in uh, 2014, and that uh, in that year, Israel launched another war in Gaza, in which I lost my brother. The UK warned that it would suspend existing uh, export licenses to Israel if significant hostilities resumed, as it would not be able to ensure that the UK arms were not being used to commit serious violations of international law. But here we are in 2023-2024, Israel is committing a genocide in Gaza. And that's not according to me, that's according to the International Court of Justice. They said Israel is, um, it's possible that Israel is committing a war, uh, a genocide in Gaza. But why does the UK still support Israel with weapons? Why hasn't uh, it so, stopped? So the, the, there are a whole range of things at play here. The first that's really important is that, you know, British ministers will tell us and have told us for decades, and even in some of the cases of some of the Palestine action activists, we hear this from the government side. We have a very rigorous arms export control system amongst the best in the world. That is a lie. It is a blatant, blatant lie. On paper, we might have quite a good system. We certainly don't have the best. And I've been investigating and researching these laws for 23 years now. In practice, we have one of the worst because the government can pretty much do what it wants. And the courts will do very little to stand in their way because they always say, well, that's a political executive decision by the government. So we're not going to intervene as the courts because many organizations have tried to engage in legal action against the government for all sorts of sales to Israel during all of the, the incursions into the occupied territories and some of the worst um, of the atrocities that took place before the situation we're in now. Nothing happens. We've seen the situation in Yemen, where for almost nine years now, Britain, the US, Europe has been selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates that have killed in excess of 20,000 innocent civilians. And the extraordinary thing is, a lot of those civilians have not been killed as collateral damage, but they've been intentionally targeted. And who's assisting the Saudi and UAE-led coalition with targeting? The United States and Britain's military. So that's the one side of it, where we are in the West and we cannot, cannot accept this ourselves. The mainstream media would never publish anything that says this. We are rogue states. We have to accept that. We actually cause 
more death, more immiseration, more catastrophe for human beings around the world than any other countries. Of course, I would argue the United States is worse than us and we just follow the United States as an obedient poodle most of the time. So that's the one side of it. But then, even within this completely unacceptable situation, we have this absurd manifestation where the West has decided that its Middle Eastern strategy is going to be based on its alliance effectively with Saudi Arabia and Israel. And then there are certain other countries that, you know, it wants to bring into that, that sort of orbit. And there have been these Abraham Accords that, is, that the United States has insisted on. So Arab countries signing these sort of cooperation agreements with Israel. And interestingly, Saudi Arabia was about to sign the Abraham Accords just before the 7th of October. But even the autocratic rulers in Saudi realize that their people will actually rise up against them if they were to do that because of what has happened since the 7th of October. But it's also because of the way Israel and Saudi Arabia, but let's focus on Israel at the moment, the way in which Israel has effectively bought politicians, political parties all over the Western world. So on the one hand, there are enormous amounts of money that go into their lobbying operation. Them and the Saudis spend more than anyone else on lobbying the US government, the British government, and all Western governments. So they're effectively buying politicians. Let's be clear, we call it something nice and technical like lobbying, but it's effectively buying politicians. And there is overwhelming evidence for that in the UK and the US. It's legal in the US, as I said, it's illegal in the United Kingdom. The second thing that Israel has done very effectively, and they did this when the threat of boycott, divestment, sanctions, BDS, was increasing against them. And the Israelis know how effective BDS can be because they were apartheid South Africa's closest allies. And they saw that it was BDS, amongst other things, that led to the end of apartheid in South Africa. So when BDS started becoming stronger and stronger around the world, they established a ministry in the Israeli government whose intention was to destroy the BDS movement. And what was the strategy? To make support for BDS, to make any criticism of Israel effectively equivalent to anti-Semitism. And so, along with buying politicians, they've also terrified politicians by convincing them and convincing most of the world that anything that is critical of Israel is anti-Semitic. Now, you know, I feel this very immediately as a Jew because I'm extremely critical of the state of Israel. I also believe that you cannot suggest that the state of Israel represents all Jewish people, is in any way responsible for all Jewish people, and nor are all Jewish people responsible for the actions of the state of Israel. But the state of Israel would have us believe that that is the case because it suits their political agenda. So they've created this pressure on Western states. And as our politics have got worse and worse in the West, as our politicians become more mendacious, mediocre, more corrupt, they just fall for this nonsense. And what it's done is it's undermined the very real struggle against racism, against anti-Semitism, against Islamophobia, against all forms of discrimination. And in the process, 
it effectively gives Israel a free card to do whatever it wants. And that's why in 2023 and 2024, the British government has completely rejected its own laws, violated its own laws, and sold as much as Israel has required. And that's been a huge amount. Why? Why? Because our politics have been bought, one, okay, because of this unbelievable fear of anti-Semitism, which effectively brought down the leader of the opposition in this country just a few years ago because he was an anti-imperialist and he was critical of Israel. And this man, Jeremy Corbyn, who was briefly leader of the Labour Party, was effectively identified as an anti-Semite and is one of the most anti-racist people I've ever met. And I worked for Nelson Mandela and was a friend of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So I've met quite a lot of fairly significant anti-racists in my life. And they labeled Jeremy Corbyn, one of the greatest anti-racists that Britain has ever had, as an anti-Semite. They label Jews as anti-Semite if Jews dare to criticize Israel. So, you know, the tens of thousands of ultra-Orthodox Jews who are anti-Zionist within Israel, Israeli Jews, are, according to the Israeli state, our own government and our opposition party now under Keir Starmer, they are now anti-Semites. And if they're Jewish, then they're self-hating Jews because that's the only way they can define anti-Semitism for Jews. So that's the one side of it, is this is both a combination of money and fear. Then on the other side of it, Israel is the poster child, if you will, of a global ethno-nationalist ideology. It's an ideology that we see not only in Israel, which, as I say, is the best example, but we see with people like Donald Trump in the United States of America. We see it with people like Nahendra Modi in India. We see it with people like Viktor Orban in Hungary. And you know what the ultimate irony of all of this is? These ethno-nationalists who adore Israel, many of them are actual anti-Semites. Yeah. Viktor Orban uses anti-Semitic images every time he has to fight an election campaign. These figures of what was called the Hochenheimer face that the Nazis used to depict Jews, he uses a version of that that's supposed to resemble George Soros in all of his election campaigns. But he's Israel's biggest friend. India's Modi and Israel are incredibly close. And that's why, you know, when a year and a half or whatever it was ago now, two years ago now, the capital in the United States was occupied by sort of Trump supporters. You had people wearing incredibly anti-Semitic clothes, like six million was not enough t-shirts, or Arbeit macht frei, which was the insignia over Auschwitz, standing next to people holding Israeli flags, and they didn't see the hypocrisy and the contradictions of that. So this is the madness of the world we live in now that this insane ethno-nationalism, which is just a form of racism, really, together with Israel's extreme lobbying efforts, have led our governments to this point where the Israeli state, as we are seeing in the case of your family and so many other families, can effectively murder with impunity. And that's why direct action becomes so important. And I'll tell you something. What Palestine Action and similar organizations around the world do is the most effective action I have seen against the arms trade in the 23 years I've been investigating the arms trade.
Thank you very much, Andrew. So, Huda, today we learned that the Dutch court has ordered the uh, the government to hold delivery of the uh, part of the F-35 jets uh, to, to Israel. And my question is, isn't it time that now the UK follows suits? Of course. I don't think now it was the only time that it was appropriate for them. I don't think they should have ever been sending these parts. And what's happened in, in by the Dutch court is, is quite significant. But also, one of the things here is that sometimes they will sell parts to the US for the F-35 fighter jets before they're sent over to Israel. So for example, when we did an action, when Palestine Action did an action at the Leonardo factory in Edinburgh, the factory actually gave a comment to the press, which they don't normally do. And they basically tried to um, avoid their complicity in what Israel was doing by saying, well, we comply with all arms export licenses, it's sent over to the US, and then they do what they like with it, basically. So there's this kind of chain. I think it's also important when we, when we talk about it, to, we always talk about arms sales to Israel, which of course is extremely significant, but there's also the other way, which is buying Israeli weapons, which we are buying in the hundreds of millions the British government is. For example, from Elbit Systems, Israel's largest weapons manufacturer. And buying them and also hosting their factories because the Israeli weapons trade is built on the destruction of Palestine. The weapons that they are selling to the British government will be tested on the Palestinian people in Gaza first. We've seen this time and time again. The Hermes 450 drone made by Elbit Systems was first developed on the Palestinian people in Gaza, is now being bought by the British government to spy on the refugees who are trying to seek refuge in this country. We, we saw it in 2021, they were using artificial intelligence drones for the first time in Gaza. They called it the first AI war. And again, we're seeing this now on a, on a global market. So every time the British government buys weapons buys Israeli weapons, they are encouraging the occupation to continue because they are benefiting from it. And the Israeli weapons industry is profiting from it. So we need to have them stop all arms sales to Israel, but also stop buying Israeli weapons and stop hosting the Israeli weapons trade. Because as long as that continues, that relationship, it will continue to perpetuate the occupation, displacement and genocide of the Palestinian people. Thank you. Um, uh, this question is very pers a little bit personal to me, and it re uh, it's uh, relating to the ICG, ICJ ruling. And I remember when the ICJ ruling um, uh, emerged, many experts, many legal experts said that this is a historic victory for Palestine, and they were celebrating this victory. But for me, the moment I heard the ruling, I was disappointed. Why? because the ICJ ruling failed to mention the word ceasefire. And this was, um, you know, Andrew, you're South African, and the South African team, one of their, uh, one of the, um, their main uh, requests, uh, the most urgent request was to uphold an immediate ceasefire. So my question to you, to Andrew and to Huda, should I be happy about the ICJ ruling? Because for me, I'm not, I'm disappointed. And now there are over 1,500 Palestinians killed after the ICJ ruling. So what did, what did I gain? It's tough because I, when I 
when I heard the results, it's mixed emotions in many ways. And also, in one way, it's disappointing because whatever they said, it's continuing. And the power is, is very limited of the International Court of Justice. And if it goes to a full trial, it's going to take years. And it, it's, it's too late by that point. Obviously, you want some form of recognition that what Israel is doing is genocide. But there needs to be immediate implementation of those, of those rulings. So yes, I am. I, I think it's not normal and right to be disappointed that they didn't call for a ceasefire and didn't implement all of the measures. But I think also it demonstrates that these mechanisms, which we believe are supposed to enshrine international law and protect humanity, don't actually aren't 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 carrying out that in practice and aren't capable of stopping Israel. It's continued. Look, we're, we're, what we're seeing now in Rafa, it's it's it's. We're watching Israel try and depopulate Gaza, and even after that ruling, whatever they did or didn't call for, it didn't stop it. And 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 I think that's when we, what we're seeing now in a few months' time is all of the different mechanisms. And I think for Palestinians and other people as well, we've become disillusioned with a lot of these systems. But now I think the world is seeing in a very short time frame how all of these mechanisms that we believe are there to protect us are failing and are failing the Palestinian people. And if we don't have that, then the only thing we have left is ourselves, and is each other, and is our ability to continue to fight in every way we can. And, um, and unfortunately, I'm, I, I don't feel like we can rely on the International Court of Justice to, to change what's happening in Gaza. I think it is significant and people can come. It is being used, I think, in, in by, for example, Japan's Itachu Corporation used that uh, ruling as a way of saying we're not going to work with Elbit Systems. They, they cut all ties of Elbit Systems. It's a mechanism now which campaigners can use to say, well, look, the International Court of Justice is now saying it's genocide. It's not that we can't see it for ourselves, but it gives some sort of backing to what you are saying. And in that sense, um, it's useful. But I think that's, that, and that's the key thing with it. It's not the end all and be all. It's a mechanism which we now use to further our case. And you know, it's, a, it's, it's extremely disappointing that we have to rely on these things when we can see it for ourselves. Everyone can see what is happening. But to further our, our campaigns and um, in cutting ties with the Israeli weapons industry, the case has never been legally stronger than it has right now. And that goes for anyone who's working with Elba Systems or any of the Israeli weapons industry and other corporations and institutions that are enabling the genocide, that are investing in the genocide, that they now have to question whether they are actually going to be committing a crime. Now, we know they've been committing crimes by doing this, but now there might be some sort of potential repercussion where they don't want to be associated with something that the International Court of Justice has said could plausibly be a genocide. So whatever they have said, I believe is a tool for us. Um, it is not everything that was asked for, but it was never going to be, in, in my opinion, capable of stopping the genocide of the Palestinian people. Thank you. Yeah. I, I agree with what Huda said. 
I understand your disappointment. These are imperfect institutions, the UN, the whole architecture of supposed international rule of law, because our governments have become lawless, effectively. So what do we do against our lawless governments is we try and fight in ways where most of the time we won't have ultimate victory, but we will have successes on the way to what that ultimate victory would be. And I think we have to see the ICJ judgment in that context. First of all, I think it's very significant and symbolic that it was South Africa that brought that case. Because South Africa is a country that not only existed under a system of racist oppression, like the Palestinians have for so many years now, but the fact that South Africa felt an obligation on the global stage to stand up for Palestinians against their racist oppressor. And I think when you saw those South African lawyers, you know, I think many people who hadn't thought deeply enough about these issues seeing this would think, wow, you know, these are the people who were oppressed. Now they are the lawyers and the judges. And the... so I think there's an important symbolism there. Then I think the power of the South African submission by comparison to the Israeli submission, which was frankly pathetic from a legal perspective, and, and where their leading lawyer couldn't even get his pages in the correct order. I mean, everything about the South African submission was, was so measured, was so detailed, was so evidenced. And by comparison to that, you had the Israeli lawyers shuffling to see where the, their pages had gone to. And I think that, that also showed where the moral values lay and where the immorality or amorality lay. So I think in that sense, that was very important symbolically. That was very, very important. Yeah. And, uh, but then, if I could just say, I think in terms of the outcome, I was incredibly anxious that the ICJ, with an American judge at its head, would actually find a technicality to dismiss the whole case. But then when you see that there were only two judges who were in a minority on any of their rulings, and that was the judge who was sent by Israel, and a Ugandan judge whose own government has distanced themselves from her because of the positions she's taken. So I think it was an overwhelming moral victory for Palestine, but I understand that that doesn't help because within two hours of the judgment, Palestinians are again being slaughtered. So I think the platform was used effectively. The outcome was far stronger than many people expected. And the reality is, while they didn't call for a ceasefire in total, if you look at the directives, if Israel had complied with all of those directives, the onslaught on Gaza would not be able to continue. But the reality is, Israel, like it does all of the time, and we knew they were going to do this. How? Because they told us. And that's how we know they're committing a genocide. Even if we hadn't seen one image from Palestine, we would know because they told us they're committing a genocide from their most senior political and military leaders. So they told us they were going to ignore the court ruling. 
And this shows the weakness of the international institutions because if the UN functioned more effectively, it would immediately have suspended or expelled Israel until it conformed to the ICJ adjudication. So I think the failure to call for a, a ceasefire is a component of the failure of the international system at the moment. But I think some important successes were achieved despite the fact that there wasn't the victory we were all hoping for. Yes, I uh, I agree with you in that. I just was disappointed because, you know, for Palestinians, we just wanted to hear the word ceasefire. Of course. It would mean the world of to course. us. And um, knowing that they failed to even mention the word ceasefire, it was a disappointment to me. But I don't say that the, the whole ruling was a failure. Yeah. It was a success to some extent, but we were disappointed. We wanted to hear the word a ceasefire. But there is uh, one of the good points of that um, ICJ ruling is that now we know more people are now talking about uh, a genocide, that Israel is committing a gen genocide. And this is this is actually very powerful. And my question to you, Huda, do you think there is any way for Israel, uh, is there any way back for Israel in terms of, um, it's a global reputation after this, this energy, uh, after this genocide? Well, there shouldn't be. And I think we can't allow that to happen. But I think when we saw what happened in 2014, during the assault on Gaza, that, you know, they called, what, 2,200 Palestinians in the space of 50 days. And there was a lot of effort put into propaganda after Israeli lobby groups pulling money into propaganda afterwards to try and recuperate Israel's reputation. I don't believe now that that we as human beings can allow that to happen and i and i truly believe that in terms of how willing we are to take action or take direct action and the risks we're willing to take are now it's everything is at its most intense period and what we do now will be will be what we look back in history how we acted now how far were we willing to go to stop this genocide how uncomfortable were we willing to were we willing to step out of our comfort zones and or did we take the path of least resistance or did we do everything physical in our power to stop the institutions and the companies continuing with this genocide and i think that is the point where we are at where now what we do if we're not willing to put our liberty on the line, if we're not willing to, to sacrifice a bit of our time, a bit of our freedom in order to stop companies on our doorstep, building them weapons which are gonna be sent over to Israel to massacre the Palestinian, then will we ever be? And- Huda, are you, are, are you hopeful that we might have in the near future, mm -hmm. see a global embargo of arms uh, to Israel? 100%. And this is, this is where I believe that as a global community or as a, um, an international solidarity, there will be certain steps to completely isolate Israel. I don't believe the governments are going to gift it to us. I believe that it will become a point where people don't tolerate weapons companies operating on their doorstep when there was so much action against them that the government inter intervenes to a point and says, okay, we're now going to pose an arms embargo and, and, and claim it's because we respect human rights because they don't want it to look like the people won that victory. But in order to get there, you have to do the action.
you have to have such an uprising that it's impossible for them to operate and then the governments will come in and say okay we'll now impose an arms embargo because they want to save face throughout all of it and that is one of the key measures we need in order to stop the current genocide but stop the occupation of the Palestinian people. We have to completely isolate Israel. We need to completely cut them off. We can't have that Israeli weapons factories operating across Britain, operating on our doorsteps. It should not be tolerated. And I think, you know, sometimes people look at direct action as, as quite maybe a radical thing to do. But to me, and to a lot of people, I feel like it's, it's the, the radical and insane thing is having these companies and factories there driving past them every single day and doing nothing about it. If we saw people being murdered in our streets right in front of us, we'd do something about it. And what is happening in those factories is murder, is genocide, and that is what we are contributing to every day. We do not act to stop them. And that ultimately, enough people taking personal sacrifices to stop that will ultimately lead to the government imposing sanctions. And I believe that's, that is the key way that that will happen and maybe the only way. I think the three of us, are, we all in agreement that the British government, the UK government uh, response to this genocide in Gaza is terrible. Mm. But Andrew, what do you think of the Labour response? to the genocide in Gaza. So the Labour Party is supposed to be a democratic socialist party. That's what it says on the membership card. The Labour Party that I was a member of until about a week ago hasn't been democratic or socialist since 2019 when its current leader Keir Starmer became leader of the party. He's my personal local MP. He has taken the party so far to the right that it is virtually indistinguishable from the Tory party and on certain issues, I think possibly even worse. He is a reflection of the very worst of our pretty awful politics at this point. And that is manifested in the fact that they did not immediately demand of the government that there be a ceasefire in Gaza and that Britain stop its arms sales at that point. And when you ask the question why, we have to ask, is it ideological? Is this his belief system that Israel can do what it wants, that the international rule of law is irrelevant? Is it because an enormous number of his donors are big companies, individuals who are effectively lobbyists for Israel? Probably the biggest individual donation in the Labour Party's history came a few months ago from a South African-born person called Gary Lubner, who gave the party five million pounds. Lubner's only real interest is in ensuring that there's no criticism of Israel. So is Keir Starmer going to say, here, have your five million back, I'm going to criticize Israel? Of course he's not. Of course he's not. So that shows that rather than representing the people who elect him, He's representing his multi-billionaire donors. And that's the problem of the Labour Party. It's become exactly what the Tory party is. It is as mendacious, as corrupt, and as mediocre. Now, what makes it even worse is that Keir Starmer claims to have been a human rights lawyer. He has yet to mention one word about the ICJ ruling. Mm -hmm. Not one word. 
So this is a human rights lawyer who seems not to understand human rights, who seems not to understand war crimes, who seems not to understand violations of international humanitarian law, who seems not to understand the Genocide Convention, and who most certainly seems not to have one shred of humanity. And that's why so many progressive people and so many Muslims are turning away from his party, despite the fact that we have the most incompetent, appalling government than we've had for generations in this country. Can I just add something to that? Yes, please. I think we're used to seeing our government being, uh, the politicians uh, appearing pro-Israel and siding with the oppressors of the Palestinian people. But I think I was truly shocked, which is hard to be, hard to be by these politicians, by how much they were manufacturing consent for the genocide. Normally, they at least try and pretend to care about human rights. They try and pretend to care about international law. But these past few months, I think, is unlike anything we've seen before. And it's become so blatant and so obvious. And, you know, in a way, at least it's more clear cut than it was before when they were trying to pretend like they, had, they, they, they cared about humanity, human rights, international law, all these principles were supposed to be built upon. We saw the, you know, the um, Department of Health and Social Care flying the Israeli flag. It's never become more clear who the politicians, who they stand with. And I think with people like Starmer, we've seen what he said at the start of this. We've said what he's done before as well, constantly you know, saying that um, he's against BDS, he's, he's you know, pro-Zionism even before October the 7th. And recently you can sense that he's trying to roll back a bit because he realizes he's losing the Muslim vote. And it's very clear that people will never forget that politicians are very um, opportunistic and will switch in a moment's time. But we have seen the vast majority of parliament stab Palestinians in the back at one moment or another. And we cannot forget that. And we cannot forget that the true power lies within the people. And it's up to us. It's up to us. You know what I would say to British people at this point? Mm. Don't vote for anybody at a local level because we have local elections in May. At a national level, because we will probably have an election sometime this year at a national level, don't vote for anybody who hasn't explicitly and unreservedly endorsed a ceasefire from the moment this appalling situation started, because they don't deserve your vote. And what it says about their basic morality and ethics is just so terrifying for the reasons that Huda outlines. That we really, we should just, the one thing that we all have is the vote. And we should simply withhold it from them. Exactly. Andrew, we heard recently that you might be standing against Keir Starmer and his constituency in the upcoming election. Is that true? (laughs) So the situation as of the 12th of February is that two organizations have endorsed me to stand against Keir Starmer in our constituency, that I've made clear to them that I'm willing to stand against him. And I think 
a primary reason for that willingness, because I don't have a great desire to get back into formal politics. But probably the primary reason for that is because of his personal and his party's attitude to Gaza. I, however, don't believe that it's for me to decide whether I should stand against him. I think that the broader community, and particularly what I would describe as the progressive community in our constituency of Hoburn and St Pancras, where I live, should make that decision. So I'm willing to stand, but I also believe there needs to be far broader consultation in the community, especially with the Muslim community in the area, and that if we find a candidate who would have a better chance of vocalizing these issues against Starmer, then I will work tirelessly to have that person elected. If the community decides that I am best placed to do that, then I will do it. But I want to turn the question on both of you for a moment, because it's a very difficult question for me. I only went into formal politics because I was asked to by the ANC, and I had the enormous privilege of serving under Nelson Mandela. And under his successor, I had a huge falling out with him because my committee tried to investigate a hugely corrupt arms deal. We spent $10 billion on weapons that we didn't need and we've barely used ever since. At a time when we had massive socioeconomic needs, we had 6 million people living with HIV or AIDS. This was a complete waste of money and the only reason we did it is because at least $350 million of bribes were paid, including to my own party itself. And when the president wouldn't allow an unfettered investigation into the deal, I resigned as a matter of principle. So I don't believe in professional politicians, mm -hmm. but I believe that there are some moments when it's important to take on the professional politicians. But I would be very interested to hear both your view and Huda's view as to whether you think it would have any impact to stand against someone who has become a symbol of what he has. I, uh, Huda. Well, I would enjoy Keir Starmer losing. <laughs> what, who wouldn't? And I think that, um, and I think losing because of his stance on Palestine and that coming through, I think is a very, um, a very strong message to send out there. And it would really shake up uh, the Labour Party. And um, I believe in you as a human being to carry that message into Parliament. I don't necessarily believe in how much direct change will come from that, but I think it is comforting to know that someone like you who has, you know, just if I'm taking Palestine action, not personally, support Palestine action from the very beginning, being in there to challenge, to challenge it when, 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 um, when things are raised about Albert systems and other things, and we've seen, you know, government meetings about Palestine, having someone in there, in Parliament, who we can actually trust to represent our interests, uh, is comforting. And I'll go back to saying that, you know, Keir Starmer losing would be a great thing to watch. Well, I'm, uh, I'm not British, I'm a Palestinian, so I don't think I have much to say about this. 
But uh, Gaza means the world to me, and Palestine means the world to me. Uh, and it pains me to see that some people who are wronging Gaza, who are doing injustice to Gaza and to the Palestinians, because you know, Palestinians are humans, just like the British people who are humans. And they think the British people and the Palestinian people deserve someone who can do better. Uh, because if they fail the Palestinian people, they will fail their own people. And uh, the, the UK has a legal responsibility towards Palestine. And the, the, I, I really respect, expect that the next prime minister in the UK will do justice for the Palestinians because it's long overdue and we deserve to, uh, to have justice from the UK. It all started from here, from London, all of our suffering, all of our tragedy. And it's just enough. We need someone who can do something for the Palestinians, who can end this genocide uh, that we're that has been inflicted on the Palestinians. So personally, I would love to see you win than <laughs> Keri Starmer, but it's not up to me. It's up to the British people. Yeah. But it was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. Thank you very much.